We are. This is the new normal. Fantastic. Um, thank you so much, Luke, for putting that video together for us. Um, we're going to be looking together at the back half of the book of Romans under this idea of the new normal. And now everything in the world changes all the time. You're sitting still, and yet despite sitting still, every second your body's producing 25 million new cells, and your brain is processing over 100 million new pieces of information. And despite sitting stationary, you're changing location as well at a rate of 66,000 miles per hour as the planet Earth continues to move despite you sitting still. The sun, which if you were to pick an object in a universe that we might think of as being steady and static and stable, the sun nevertheless is already 50 million times lighter than it was when the sermon first began. And now whenever seismic shifts occur on the Earth or in our lives, after the dust settles, we find ourselves in a new situation that we often reach for language to refer to as being a new normal. Now, in a world and in a universe where everything's changing, the question that many of us have asked over the past year is, how are we to live when every week they're announcing new changes, or we can do this and we can't do that? How are we to live? And the answer is, by looking for something stable and secure to build our lives upon. We're looking for a rock, aren't we? And the book of Romans is, is written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Rome, and it, in large part, it's about the seismic shift that has taken place in the world, in human history, as a result of the coming of Christ. And we spent, over the last couple of years, we've done it in different bits and pieces, we've spent some time looking at chapters 1 to 8, which is essentially about the, the gospel, the beautiful news of Jesus coming into the world, like, I don't know if you can see it, so I'll pick it up. That's heavier than I thought. <laughs> like a giant rock, an asteroid, a comet. I've got a head rush. <laughs> Coming from outer space, blazing in the night sky, hitting, impacting planet Earth. That is Christ, the coming of the Son of God into the world. And as the world looked on in this array of light and sound, as, as Jesus' life and death and resurrection made the impact and continues to make the impact that it's done, the Apostle Paul has spent the first eight chapters of Romans 8 describing just how beautiful the coming of Christ is into the world, the impact that it's going to have on the world, the way that we can trust in him to be saved. And then he turns his attention in the back half of the book to say, right, now, given Christ has come, we're in a new normal. If you're in Christ, he says elsewhere, you're a new creation. Given that, how are we to live? And often that's what Paul does in his letters. He spends the back half saying, all right, in light of this, therefore, now this. And that's what we're going to be considering together, how to live in the light of the coming of Christ. Welcome to the new normal, we might say. And to do that, we're going to be looking, as I said, each week at chapters 9 through 16. And um, I'm going to read for us the entire chapter, the entire of chapter 9 and then spend some time answering the questions that it poses. Okay, this is what Paul says. 
I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing wrong, neither good nor bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So, that it, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that, by, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he who has mercy, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God desiring to show his wrath to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he's called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What should we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is God's word. Now, men don't invent a God like this. This is not a tame lion. God is not a tame lion, to quote C.S. Lewis. 
the new normal for the Christian and for the world, if you like, the new normal is learning to live with a free God, a sovereign God, a God who can do whatever he wants. Because apparently, as Paul has laid out for us in this chapter, God cannot be controlled by us. God cannot be controlled by us, which causes us a problem. On the one hand, the problem is that we trip over the rock of Christ. We trip over what God's done in the world. And on the other hand, we get offended by God's activity in the world. Or, as Paul says at the end of chapter 9, those aren't the only two options. You trip over, you get offended by or... He says you have the choice that you can believe in Christ and therefore have the confidence that you will not be put to shame. Today I want us to consider the responses to this free God, this sovereign one. We can trip, we can get offended, or we can believe. And the question is, that I want to kick us off with, is why does Paul do what he does in chapter 9? Why, at this point in the letter, I've said he's laid out the implications of Christ. Why does he now turn his attention to this, what might seem to us, an obscure conversation between uh, the Israelites, those who are ethnically Jewish, and the Gentiles, which the word for Gentile is ethnos, where we get the word ethnic, means nations. So he talks about the difference, or the, the way that God has chosen the nations of the world, and it sounds like as, not that he's unchosen, but that he's not using only ethnic Israel anymore. And why does he include that where he does? That's where we're going. And it's here really where I love the, the honesty of the Bible. And I love the honesty of the Bible writers to not gloss over things like this. Listen to how the chapter starts. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not, I'm not lying that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I could be accursed and cut off for the sake of my countrymen. The Apostle Paul is a Jew. And he's laid out the fact that God has included the Gentiles, the nations, in his plans for salvation. And then it's as though he stops and says, Oh, but this causes me, it causes me some heart pain. It's emotional wrangling. And not just emotional wrangling, because he then says the Israelites, they are people who God gave them the adoption, them the glory, them the covenants, them the giving of the law, them the worship. He gave them the patriarchs, and it's from them that Christ has come. So he's saying, I don't, like, on the one hand, my heart is, like, I'm hurt, I'm sad for my people, that they have rejected, it seems, the Messiah. But on the other hand, he's saying, my mind is confused, because they had all of, they had so much going for them. So Paul's very honest about this, up front. And I think the reason this thought is prompted in Paul's mind is because of how Romans chapter 8 ends. We'll back up two verses from where we started. Romans 8 ends with a declaration of the security that anybody who's in Christ, who's a Christian, can have. The confidence that you can have as a child of God. He says, I'm sure, I'm convinced, if there's anything we can be certain of in an ever-changing world, I'm certain of this. That neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, nothing, in other words. I'm convinced of this, that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He ends Romans 8, this beautiful midway point in the letter where he's explained the beautiful. He ends it by saying, if you're a Christian, you are safe. 
you're securing God's hand. And it's almost as though then the thought is prompted, but what about the Jews? The Old Testament is about God choosing the Jewish family and nation out of all the nations in the world. He promised to be with them. What about them? Have they been cut off? Because if they have been cut off from God's love, then Paul might think, there's no real guarantee for you and I that God won't in the future then cut us off. Do you see where his logic goes and why he brings that up? And at the beginning, I think the application and the reason why the, the, the principle here that I think is relevant for us, we might not be sitting here agonizing over God's including of the nations at what appears to be the exclusion of the Jewish nation. We're like, That's not our problem, but our problem is, and there comes a point for every Christian, once the dust settles of becoming a Christian, there comes a point where you realize, if, he's, if I'm a believer and I'm safe in his, in his love, what about other people who aren't Christian? What about my children who I've poured myself into and I've brought them up in what I thought to be the way of God and they seem to just be carving their own path? Are they cut off as well? What about my spouse? Why would I choose Jesus if it means letting go of my spouse or my family member, my mom and my dad? I think there comes a point in every Christian's life where the emotional impact of that realization is, I'm safe, I'm secure, but what about those that I love? What am I to make of those? And I do think it's a, it's a reasonable reaction at that point to almost trip over the gospel. For something that started so beautiful to now become a source of confusion and pain and, dare I say, it's something that we stumble over and think, I'm not sure I can live with Christ. And from my experience talking to people, there is a kind of wrangling that goes on. And one of the questions that comes then is, has God failed? I mean, he's supposed to love the whole world, but as I look at it, there's a lot of the world that aren't his people. I don't know how you resolve questions like that. If you think about things like that, so many people that we love and care about who are good people, good-hearted are honest, God-fearing in some respects, don't seem to follow him. What about people of other faiths? Those are important questions. And where the Apostle Paul goes next is, I think, rather like an animal tracker, Paul traces God's footprints in the world by using the revelation of God in the Bible to get an idea for himself of how to answer these questions. Because he looks at how's God dealt with people in the past like this? How's he resolved these things before? And in the way that Paul answers these issues for us, he brings together two things that we often find hard to reconcile. On the one hand, he brings together the sovereignty and freedom of God to do whatever he wants. And on the other hand, the responsibility of every human being on the planet to respond to God for themselves. And he brings these two things together, almost like a climactic scene in a, in a superhero film where someone's got to put these kind of wire back together. And as they do, that's when the power gets released. He's holding these two things together, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And he sticks them together and he holds them. Because listen how chapter 9 ended. It ended, so where he goes from what those questions I've raised is he starts to look at, well, it seems in the Old Testament it was always by choice. God chose people, didn't he? He said, the children of Abraham aren't necessarily the natural ones, but the ones that God has chosen. There's choice. God chooses people. 
being born is always something that's outside of your choosing. And when you meet someone who live as though they're entitled, you realize, you think, I think you're missing something. You don't deserve anything. You didn't deserve to, to live. It was not your choice at all. Becoming a Christian, Paul says, is similar. God chooses you. You don't choose him. God chooses you. You don't choose him. That's always the case. He looks at the Old Testament to pick out several examples. He says um, the case of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Hannah and Samuel and David and so on in the world. On the one hand, he says it's always been about God's choice. In Ephesians 1, he says he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. God chose you. You are not born into this. You're not born a Christian. He chose you. And that is meant to be something that brings you huge comfort and give you a reason to celebrate and rejoice. The choosing of God is a way that he emphasizes his, the strength of his love towards you. There was a strange phrase, Esau as, uh, Jacob have I loved, Esau as have, have I, Jacob have I loved, Esau I have hated. And as I read that, you might have thought, that sounds strange. It was a, but Jesus uses a similar expression in the Gospels. He says, anyone who doesn't first hate their own life, hate their mother and father and first follow me is not worthy of me. He's using a Jewish expression that means that this, this designed to emphasize the strength of love. He says, the, the, the strength of love that I have for Jacob is so strong that I essentially hated Esau in comparison and contrast. In a way that I might, I might say, I love my children so much that my feelings towards other children are almost like hatred in comparison. I'm emphasizing the strength of my love, like a fierce protectiveness over these ones. The Bible says that God chooses you, loves you with a fierce, strength, strong, forceful love. So strong that it looks like he's rejected everybody else. You know, as we were praying this morning, Paul Jeffrey shared this beautiful illustration about God's love and God's choosing, that he never chooses people in general. He always chooses people in particular. So you may, over the past few months or the coming months, get a text from the government saying, it's now your turn. You have now made it into the bracket to go and get immunized against COVID-19. You have reached that, you know, the right grouping now. Now I'm in, the, in that grouping myself, in the late 30s, early 40s grouping. I've now been invited because I belong to this group. God doesn't choose people in groups. He chooses you individually by name. If you're here today or listening to this, if there's a, a longing and a stirring in your heart of love for God, it's an indication that he has his hand on you. He's sovereignly choosing you. But Paul ends chapter 9 by emphasizing something else. He says, I'm laying this rock in Zion that will be something that people trip over, but to everyone who looks upon it, believes upon it, they won't be put to shame. There's an emphasis at the end of chapter 9 upon the importance of individuals making a choice for themselves to believe. You might say it's God's sovereign choosing on the one hand, but it's your responsibility on the other hand. God sovereignly chooses you, but you have a responsibility to choose him. We often think, how can those two things hold together? 
And I think the example of what um, Charles Spurgeon shares in one of his lectures, he reflects on this experience of, of becoming a Christian, and he says this, When I was coming to Christ, I thought that I was doing it all myself. And although I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea at the time that it was in fact the Lord who was seeking me. One weeknight, when I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking about the preacher's sermon, for I did not believe it, something I can't relate to. The thought struck me. How did you come to be a Christian? Well, I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? I should not have sought the Lord unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. How did I come to pray? Well, I was induced to pray by the reading of the Bible. How did you come to read the Bible? And then, in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all, that he was the author of my faith, and I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. I ascribe my change wholly to God. So the response to tripping over big questions... The big issues, the heart-wrangling, head-confusing problems, the response, rather than tripping over the sovereignty of God, is to sometimes reconcile it with the responsibility of man, to hold those two things together. And Paul says, by quoting Isaiah, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Belief means to actively trust. To actively trust in him to choose him in the decisions that we make. That's the first response, is tripping over. But the second response that we can have is the response of becoming offended by God, offended by his sovereignty and his freedom to do what he wants. That's essentially what Paul says to them in, in Romans 14 to 21, in the verses that we read, where he quotes the example of the, the, um, the potter, and does not the potter have the freedom to do whatever he wants with the clay? Paul's response to people who are offended by God's choosing is this. He says, your problem is that you either have a diminished view of God or an enlarged view of self. What you need to do, and what he does in these verses, is he says, you, almost, you need to hide your self-view for a while. Just so you can see God and let God be God. You know, we're, we're people who are obsessed with our rights. It's my right for this, or I deserve that. In this chapter, Paul says, well, what about God's rights? What about the, the potter's rights? What about him who made you and his rights? He made over two trillion galaxies. Do you think you have rights before him? Let's get yourself out of the way for a moment and consider him. And he does that by quoting some Old Testament examples of Pharaoh and the, the battle between him and Moses and God hardening Pharaoh's heart in response to Pharaoh's own stubbornness, hardens Pharaoh's heart, gives him over to what he wanted anyway, and then judges Pharaoh for it. I don't know, if, this past year we've spent a lot of time, many of us have, on video calls. And um, the challenge of talking to someone on Zoom often is that you're trying to talk to someone while there's a picture of yourself and a video of yourself staring back at you. It's very off-putting. <laughs> and if we're honest, it's very hard to focus on the person you're talking to when you're all the while going, how do I look? How's my hair? If I sit like this, if I do this facial expression? You know, it's very hard to think about what they're saying when all the while I'm going, I do look good today, or I should have done my hair, or I look tired. 
you know, imagine in normal life if you walked around with a mirror and every time you spoke to someone, you put a mirror next to them and you just stare at yourself all the time. Se- several months ago, I discovered that those, those three little dots, if you click on it, there's a, there's a button that you can click on that says hide self view. Revolutionary. I can now talk to people without constantly looking at myself. I hope I'm not the only one. <laughs> and I think that's what Paul's doing in Romans 9. This is almost his hide self view button so that we can see God properly. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And then in verse 21 and 22 of chapter 9, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath, and to make known his power has endured with us, with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. What if God's done that in order that then to display his glory in others? In other words, hide self-view, consider the sovereignty and freedom of God to do what he wants. The, the reason this often offends us is because it, it pictures the human race coming to God in desperation for salvation and of God standing going, no, you cannot come in. And that's why it annoys us when we hear, uh, hear the Bible teach us that God chooses some and not everyone else. When we read chapters like this, it offends that part of us because we think, but God, you, that's not fair. And yet, is that the case, that picture of humanity or, and the picture of God? Is that true? This is what Jesus said in John 6 verse 37. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And in Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. The image in Scripture is not of God turning people away, but of God making himself available so that whoever wants him can have him. Or as Moses says, in, or as Paul quotes Moses in verse 15, I will have mercy on whom, whoever I have mercy, on whom I choose. God is a God overflowing with mercy. The picture in the Bible is not of the human race coming to God and of God saying, uh, I choose you and not you, you know, like a cosmic game of duck, duck, dam. It's not what God does. Instead, the picture in the Bible is of the entire human race running headlong away from God towards a motorway like stupid children and of God calling to us saying, repent, turn around, turn around. And every so often grabbing one out of the traffic, grabbing another away from the fire to save us. He violates our will and chooses some to stop us from killing ourselves. But us, what we do instead, like children trying to avoid their grandmother's kisses, we squirm out of the way of God's mercy as much as we can desperately trying to avoid his patronizing because we are free, powerful, proud beings who don't need God. That's the vision and the image of God and humanity in the Bible. It's of a people who are willfully ignoring him and it's of a God is doing all that he can to rescue him. Paul holds a sober view of man and an exalted view of God together holds them, again, joining two pieces of the electrical cable together to create the power. The new normal is letting God be God, is learning to live with a free God, a sovereign God. The new normal 
is learning to build our lives solely on the rock of Christ. Rather than tripping over him or becoming offended by him, it's learning to trust him, to sit down on him, and to obey everything he says, to hold the mystery of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, to hold the sober view of man with the exalted view of God, to hold them together, trusting him and the promises that we will not be put to shame. Several years ago, um, when I was leading the youth work, we took some young people potholing. And um, being the youth leader, I had to go with them. But being a coward and the worst, I'm really scared of enclosed spaces, especially underground enclosed spaces. And yeah, I had to go because, you know, I wouldn't want them thinking that I wasn't, you know, brave. And, and so we put the head torches on and entered these underground tunnels and everything in me was offended. Everything in me wanted to not do this. Everything in me was terrified. But I learned that by staying as close as I could to the person in front of me, yes, I made the teenagers go first, by, by staying as close as I could to the person in front of me, I could make it through the darkness and the confusion that was flooding me and wanting to inflict panic attack after panic attack on me. In a world of revolutions and of chaos and of uncertainties and of constant change, the way we build our lives on the solid rock of Christ, rather than stumbling or being offended, the way is by staying as close to him, Jesus, as we can. And trusting that he will lead us through, or as the Apostle Paul says, trusting that we will not be put to shame. It's not just that there is light at the end of the tunnel. Christ will lead us home to our Father. And I think that it's in this way, by staying close to Jesus in community with his people, it's in this way that we're able to build and know the strength and the security of Romans chapter 8 and learn to live in the new normal. The Apostle Paul says at the beginning of Romans, let God be true and every man a liar. It's learning to trust him with our lives. So wherever you are, whether you are tripping over some of the claims of Christianity or offended by the boldness of a free and sovereign God, Paul's encouragement to you today in this new world is to learn to build your life on him. Stay close to Jesus and trust that he will lead you home. You can do that by reaching out to him in faith, by asking him to forgive you, by asking him to teach you, by asking his heart to be your heart, his values to be your values. And you can do that by stepping back, sitting down and saying, God, you run the universe. You're sovereign. You're free. You can be yourself. Let's pray.